Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, 2023 is underway, and this gang is going to be the year where we build the army to save democracy in 2024. I need you to go to jointheunion.us and sign up. Gang, I know you're out there. We've recruited 65,000 of your fellow Americans, and I need you to join the ranks today. Go to jointheunion.us and get involved. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Christina Sinsoon Ramirez, the president and executive director of NextGen America, the nation's largest youth voter organization. Prior to NextGen, she was a 2020 progressive candidate for the United States Senate from Texas, and Christina founded two of Texas's largest voting and civil rights organizations, JOLT, a statewide organization focused on mobilizing the Latino vote, and the Workers' Defense Project, a community and advocacy organization for immigrants in the Texas construction industry. She's a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin, Hookham Horns, and she's coming to us from that great city, Austin, Texas. Christina, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So we were talking a little bit before we started recording about our various Austin experiences. Again, when I got there in the mid-90s, it was sort of a cow town of 250,000 people. And we talked about the airport being, you know, right downtown. You've obviously been there since then. But let's talk about Texas politically for a second before we talk next gen. So you run for the United States Senate in 2020. That's not a small undertaking in a state like Texas that I feel like is a continual heartbreaker for Democrats. There should be enough voters in Texas. It's not a voting registration state, but we have a pretty good idea of who votes how. You know, given the nature of its cities, Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, Houston, there should be a chance that it's at least purple. But it always seems to be this sort of Lucy pulling the football out from Charlie Brown for Democrats. Yeah. I mean, I think that one, first off, for people that aren't from Texas, there's an image of Texas that people have that is very different from the Texas of today. I always say I grew up in the perfect trifecta between Ohio, Texas, and Mexico. My mom is the oldest of nine kids from this really poor farm-working family in southern Mexico. And my dad's this white American hippie that went to UT Austin and ended up living on a commune in Mexico and met my mom while he was living there. And my white grandpa, he loved Texas. He wore a cowboy hat every day, a fringe leather jacket. And I think when people think of Texas, they think of my grandpa. And we have a lot of great white cowboys in our state. But our state is actually now majority young, brown, and black. And so I think the tale of Texas is that, and the lesson for Democrats and progressives, is that demographics are not destiny, that it requires long-term investment at scale in those demographics you want to see shift. And Texas is beginning to see an investment, but we're still a long way from seeing the full investment we need long-term in those communities. And also, really speaking, Democrats showing greater discipline and speaking to the economic pain especially of the Latino community, which is the big hope that they have that will shift the state. Let me take the first part first. You know, what I like to say about demographics and the Democratic Party is, yes, they should be destiny, 
unless the bad guys win and get there first. In which case, there's plenty of places in the world that are run by a minority over a majority of the people. It's not unusual in the world today. It's not unusual throughout human history. So, yes, if we can get to a place where younger voters, Latino voters, African-American voters are now not only a majority, but an active majority, I think is the most important part, maybe too, then, yeah, maybe we'll be OK. But I think that's one question I have, not only vis-a-vis -vis Texas and the Latino vote, but also bringing in now the youth vote is, do you think that those younger voters who someone like me, white guy in his mid 40s, is counting on to help save democracy? Are they Democrats, big D Democrats? Are they small P progressives? Do they have a love for the Democratic Party or is it like they just hate Republicans more? Is there any sort of thematic identity to them? You know, so I am a grandma millennial. So that means I'm at the oldest age bracket. And I think there's some important trends and things that people need to understand about young voters. This is the most progressive generation in American history. So overwhelmingly voting for Democrats, young voters. This last election, we saw Democrats win the youth vote by 28 points. I mean, this is from exit polling, and so we'll get the full data when the voter file comes out. But John Fetterman won 70 percent of the youth vote. John Kelly, 76 percent of the youth vote. Cortez Masto, like 63 percent of the youth vote. They saved our bacon. Yeah. Democracy has always been a tenuous project and young people saved at this election. So the two things to understand about young people is that this is the most progressive generation. And though they overwhelmingly vote for Democrats, a big swath of young people see themselves as independents. But they care a lot about progressive policy. And the reason that that is, is because you're looking at the first generation in American history to be worse off than their parents. This is a generation that looks at a climate crisis, looks down at a democracy in decline, and also suffers from grotesque income inequality. And so their future does not look bright. So they want big structural change and not just on the margins. And so, you know, I remind people that if you look back at the Democratic Party of the 90s, it's very different. The Democratic Party of today on issues, criminal justice reform, on how it talks about the economy, on immigration, and the young people have had a huge role to play in that. When you think about the youth vote, you mentioned that young voters overwhelmingly voted Democratic. I think in a place like Ann Arbor, Michigan, which, let's be clear, has never exactly been a ruby red part of Michigan. It's always been very deep blue, but it was something like 95 percent to 5 percent for Gretchen Whitmer. How much impact do you think something like a Dobbs decision has on that? And second, do you believe that what was a very energized cohort of voters, can you maintain that energy or at the very least, do you think you can take that energy as it cools and harden it into a resolve? This was the election that was determined by young people on the issue of abortion. And, you know, NextGen has been around for 10 years. Abortion's always come up as an issue, but it's never even been in the top five issues for young people. It surged to be number one, especially for young women. So in the polling that we saw, you had in some of the polling up to 82 percent of young women saying they were opposed to overturning Roe. Seventy one percent of young women voted for Democrats. Now, if you look at young men, it was 53 percent. So huge gender difference. And we polled people in spring before Roe decision. Abortion was coming up as an issue that was important because of what was happening in my home state of Texas. Well, we'd also seen the leak. We'd seen the leak from the Supreme Court. The one, Christina, that no one can figure out how it happened. 
It was not a guy named Damuel Polito. He was not at all the person who leaked this thing. Right? We will not determine here on this podcast. But then in the fall, when we were polling people, it had surged to the top two and three young people said they felt like abortion was on the ballot and it was motivating them to vote. And the extreme rights agenda was exposed for many young people that hadn't been fully paying attention. And they saw that it felt like fascism was on the ballot again and they had to turn out and vote like never before. Let me bring Texas and the issue of abortion together. So it was, what, September of 21, SB8. This was the one that basically not only outlawed abortion in the state of Texas, but also put sort of a bounty system in place, which, you know, the first being bad enough, the second being just beyond words. And I was in college and I worked in Texas politics when Greg Abbott was a Supreme Court justice who was always conservative but now has just become beholden to sort of the MAGA crazies that now occupy almost every statewide office for decades at this point, and a lot of the state legislatures. So why do you think he did it? And what effect do you think it had nationally on the issue and then amongst young people? So, you know, what's interesting, obviously, for anybody that understands the history of abortion is that, of course, Texas was home to winning the right to safe legal abortion for the rest of the country with Roe v. Wade coming out of the state of Texas. I just want to say really quickly, when I ran for Senate, I remember sitting down with an editorial board for a newspaper and they said, you know, John Cornyn, he used to be like a guy like Greg Abbott, where they were pretty moderate Republicans. They cared about the rule of law, democracy. Essentially, is it worse that he's going along with this extreme right wing when he knows that it's wrong? Or is it worse to not even know it's wrong and just that be your ideology? And I said, so the question is, is it better to be immoral or amoral? And so I think it's worse to be immoral because you know the full consequences of the policy decisions you are making and you're weighing your power over protecting people. And so I think that's what Greg Abbott did. He has long-term ambitions to be president of this country, to run for president. And then Texas is now serving as a laboratory for restricting the rights of women to decide what happened with their own bodies. And that really led for the national many, many legal cases, also in places like Mississippi and Louisiana that served as a pathway to go to the Supreme Court and chip away at Roe until we got to the point of where we are at now today. You mentioned something, too, about long-term investment. I mean, I traveled a lot in 2022, and I'll travel a lot this year. And the one thing I noted, and you've experienced this both, I think, probably as an activist and as a candidate, was I got to be honest with you, you know, speaking of truth-telling, Christina, I was a little bit surprised at what I didn't see as a visible Democratic Party ground game. That doesn't mean there wasn't a ground game. That doesn't mean there weren't activists out there doing as much work as they could. But to your point, there did not seem to be an institutional effort ongoing. Now, maybe I'm wrong and I didn't see it, but it didn't feel like I could see it. You know, people like to point to Georgia and Texas as the same pathway, a changing and diverse electorate, exciting statewide candidates. But one, Georgia took 10 years. Georgia, compared to Texas, is still a small town. (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing about it is that they also chose to start rebuilding the Democratic Party and strengthening it years ago. Texas has yet to do that. So Beto's campaign has really served as the basis of the Democratic Party, which I think the long term question for Democrats is, how are they going to actually build a party? Because a party is supposed to run candidates, think about the overall field of the state. And if you don't have an institution doing that as a party, it hampers everyone's abilities long term in the state. The party isn't everything, but the party is really critical because the party is set to win and find good candidates. 
But I think when you think about long-term infrastructure, the state, like I mentioned that we're a mostly young, brown and black state, next gen, I was really excited to take this job to run the largest youth vote organization. And part of my pitch to our team and our board was that if you cared about young voters, you had to be invested long-term in the largest battleground state in the country because we were also the third youngest. Look, only Utah and Alaska are younger than Texas. We have 411,000 young people that turn 18 every year. One in three eligible voters are under the age of 30 in Texas. And half of the people turning 18 every year are Latino. And so everyone talks about the Latino vote in Texas, but you have to understand that the most common age for a white American is age 55. For an African-American, it's 27. For a Latino, it's 11. Wow. Wow. Our electoral power is really going to be felt in the next several years. And so there has to be investment in young Latino voters. And those resources are some of the hardest to come by. That's fascinating, those ages. But let me ask you this, is that as you see more Latinos coming online from a voting perspective, I think sometimes it happens that the Latino population is made into a monolith when it is actually an incredibly diverse community, even within itself. So as you look forward as the leader of a youth organization, how do you understand that at least some percentage of those young people coming online aren't going to be progressive? They might be more progressive than their parents and their grandparents, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be hardcore progressives. How do you talk to those people and those voters so that even if you don't capture them, they're at least not turning their backs on you or they're not going to the Republicans who we know are going to spend the time, the money and the effort to try and get as many of those new voters as they can? Yeah, so there's one thing I will say first. The problem has also been both Republicans and Democrats made Latinos a single issue voter, which is we only cared about immigration. And immigration is a very important issue, but we are the one community that lives in the duality that, yes, many of us are newly arrived to this country, but especially in places like Texas, we existed on these lands before this country was even formed. Now, are Latinos Democrat or Republican people are asking me these days because of big shifts, especially in places like here in Texas? And I always say we're neither. We're poor. And if you look at who wins the Latino vote is who speaks to our economic pain and spends the money and time connecting with us, especially for many in our community that are going to be first time voters because they're either young or they're new naturalized citizens, or maybe they just haven't voted because we haven't built up a real culture at the levels we need to to vote. You know, if you look at a place like the Valley, the Rio Grande Valley, you know, you look at the Democratic primary. It was interesting to watch a candidate like Bernie Sanders, a real progressive, go out and fight for the Latino vote. And that was part of his theory for change in places like California to win the primary in Texas, Arizona. He was going to take the Latino youth vote, all these ignored constituencies, and he was going to spend a lot of money on them. And he hands down won the Latino vote in the Valley, clobbered every other Democrat, which at that time was still historically voting overwhelmingly Democratic. And he went with an economic, disciplined message. Republicans went in in the Valley in 2020 during the presidential general election, and they spent a lot of money with a disciplined economic message. And they took off swaths of the Latino vote. They're not winning the majority, but they're taking off swaths. And so the thing that I see is, look, in Texas, one in three Latinos don't have health care. We're the ethnic group that's least likely to have health care. We're the ethnic group that's most likely to make under $15 an hour. We're the least likely to go to college. So speak to our economic pain and spend the money on us and you'll win your vote. I'm not particularly angry that some Latinos are up for grabs. Democrats, you don't like it. Spend the time and money reaching out to the population if you don't like it. Yeah, that should be the gospel to the Democratic Party writ large, because as someone who, again, is a former Republican, but now spends a lot of time caucusing with Democrats, let's put it that way, 
I have often said that the strength of the Democratic coalition is its diversity, but that also makes it more important, I think, for Democratic leadership to understand, like, you can't have a one-size-fits-all deal. If everything you're going to do emanates out of Washington, D.C., or New York City, or Los Angeles, or San Francisco, like, there are a lot of people on the Rio Grande Valley, like, that's not their world. They don't live in that world. They don't want to live in that world. And it's frankly, Christina, it's not their reality. Yeah. I mean, I just see that a lot of people do that. They do like what you said. They make the Latino vote one size fits all, which if you imagine people going, well, what's the white vote think? <laughs> it sounds absurd to say that, but that's what they do to the Latino vote. Well, what does the Latino vote care about? Like, what's the one thing that's going to get all of them? And we know that we don't do that to white voters because guess what? They care about multiple issues and it depends on their income and where they live and what their kids need. And it's the same for everybody else. And I think something that you said at the beginning, I think, is important, which is based on what you're talking about for the Latino population vis-a-vis -vis education and health care and economic opportunity. Those are things that everybody worries about, not just here, but everywhere. Right? Everybody wants their kids to do better than they did. The difference is in America, it's supposed to be not only possible, Christina, but the norm. Right. The escalator is always supposed to be running. And the truth is, is that it's not an escalator for far too many people. It's really like one of those walkways at the airport. And half the time that's broken, too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's why you see this generation, as we discussed earlier, again, every generation has done better. But on many measures, especially on the economic measures, young people are not doing better than their parents. They have further debt. They have less home ownership. They are less happy. Many young people feel like they can't even have children because they feel like they can't afford them or they fear the future. It is not the same hope and opportunity that people felt before. I mean, I'm going to go out on a stretch here, but, you know, it seems like that there hasn't been a generation since what we now call the greatest generation in America who's seen this much hardship this early in their life. Yeah. You know, I always joke my son is going to say he lived through. President Trump getting elected, his mom running for Senate in a global pandemic, and mass school shootings on a regular basis. Like, there's a lot to take on. It is. And the other part, too, is, you know, I'm going to speak for myself. Like, my kids know everything that happens all the time. Half the time, I don't know how the heck they figure it out, but they know because the information is literally just out there. It's in the ether. Someone's going to pick it up. Somebody's going to tell them whether it's a friend with a phone or, you know, a teacher or whatever it is. There's also just, I think, so much more information coming at voters. And persuasion is 24-7 coming at everybody all the time, right? It never stops. There's always somebody out there, I'm guilty of it too, trying to persuade you that, you know, like democracy is the number one issue, we got to go fight for it. But there's somebody else, you know, in the next room who's advocating for something else. Social media has been, at the same time, it's been able to democratize information and information sharing. It's also been able to spread massive amount of misinformation and disinformation. Gen Z, speaking of Gen Z, 40% of young people, for example, now use data shows TikTok as their main source where they find information. They're not even using Google. So not everything on the internet is real, as you may know. Mm. But Google mm -hmm. will at least organize top-rated sites. Now young people are just finding videos on TikTok, a lot of it with information that's totally inaccurate. And then you know, you have forces that don't care about American democracy that spread misinformation on these platforms. But at the same time, NextGen, we run one of the country's largest influencer programs to reach young people because they're not probably watching TV or reading their newspaper. And so people that they trust, other young voices, become their main avenues to receive information. And so we're trying to capture that energy. But long term, 
I question how sustainable it is to build a system of information sharing where there can be so much inaccuracy. Give me the prototype of someone that a Gen Z late millennial voter will listen to. So, you know, we also try and target people that aren't already political. Most young people are progressive leaning in their thinking, right? Especially when we talk about how diverse this generation is. And that's also why I think the data showing for older millennials, we're also staying more progressive, which is the big thing that people always question, like, how do you keep young people progressive? Well, they are now staying in the part because this is the generation that include most people of color and a huge portion that identify as LGBTQ. And 93% of young LGBTQ folks voted for Democrats, which is pretty huge. And this is a generation that many, many of them identify with being LGBTQ plus. And so this generation, we try and find people online. Some of them are political, but a lot of them are like into hair and makeup or they have a following of like plus size modeling and things like that. But their base is local followers in their community, other young people. We worked with college athletes for the first time as well. We were on 245 college campuses this election cycle and so on some of those key campuses. We got some of the top college athletes, basketball players, football players to sign up and do events with us and also use their own social media following to encourage other young people to vote this election. So it's really about surrounding young people and everywhere we can find them, both in real life. And then we even do things like organize on dating apps because you can search by age, geography, even political persuasion. So we slide into people's DMs and we say, talk about the sexiest <laughs> thing there is, which is saving democracy. I laugh because I, I, you know, I've been married for a long time. You so have no idea. This is a world that exists outside. It's a world that exists outside my reality. Right. Yeah. Um, and so now looking, well, let me, before we get to the future, I want to talk about your run for the United States Senate in 2020. That is not a small undertaking. To run for office, regardless of where it is, what it is, is not a small undertaking. It's a fully encompassing existence as someone who hasn't run for office since high school, um, but worked on Oh my on God, what did you run for? What was it? What, what's it? The Steam Honor Bob? Council. Ooh, okay. I like that. Yeah. But <laughs> what made you decide to run for office and, and what did that experience teach you? You know, I've been doing organizing progressive work for the last 20 years in Texas, and I wasn't looking to run. I was recruited to run by some of our state's largest labor unions and some other progressive political leaders that wanted to have a progressive candidate in the Senate race. So they asked me to run. And, you know, I had started the first organization. I started to raise wages for construction workers when I was 24 years old and I was a full time student at UT. Like that was a terrible time to do that. I started my second organization, Jolt, to mobilize young Latino voters the week after the 2016 election when I was six months pregnant. And they asked me to run, and it was like not a good time for me personally, mostly raising my son by myself at this point. And they asked me to run, and I went on this long walk. I kept telling them no, but they kept calling. And I went on this long walk, and I was like, well, you've kind of always chosen to do things at the particularly wrong personal time, but is it the right time for a progressive Latina candidate to run and maybe win? And I thought, well, maybe it is. And so, and one of my gifts I always tell like people is I learned how to do progressive organizing with working class people. And what I love about Texas is there is no lefty choir to preach to. There are only non-believers to convert. And I like talking to people about policy and making them believe that government can and should do more and that wanting health care for everyone, believing that education and investing in K through college tuition free is the best investment we can make, which is an investment in our greatest asset, the American people and that building an economy for everyone, that those aren't radical ideas, that those are just baselines for taking care of our people. You know what I'm shocked by? I mean, like when you see somebody like a Ron DeSantis over in Florida with, you know, getting rid of AP 
African-American history, right? I love the people that are like, I hate cancel culture. I'm canceling culture. <laughs> right, literally. You can yeah. have no culture. You will have no culture. There's 3.4 million African-Americans in Florida. Sorry, no history for you. That's a craven political move. But it speaks to me, I think, Christina, of a larger thing. And look, let me say this as someone who has had his rear end kicked by the California Teachers Association more times than I can count. It speaks to a broader disdain, disregard, and disincentive for Republicans when it comes to not only public education, but education generally. They talk about vouchers and that, that's just all bullshit, right? Like, okay, yeah, you're going to make every public school in Texas a private school. Like, you'd have to build all new schools or you're just going to take them over. And you know how much goddamn money that's going to cost? But like the MAGA people, do they want Americans to be stupid? Is it an unstated goal to create a permanent underclass, which look, we're getting close to naturally anyway, but is it their goal to create that so that there are no chances for people to rise through the ranks, which ironically enough puts them at the mercy of the people in charge. You know, having spent 10 years doing like worker organizing economic issues, and I worked with like Republican business owners here in Texas. So I am, I don't subscribe to like, there are no good Republicans. I subscribe to the idea that there's very few of them left in any position of power. And, you know, what do I think about my ideology and worldview that's different than other people? Like my worldview is that we prosper when we make sure that government is a force for good in the majority of people's lives. And its job is to protect its people and make sure that we can care for our people it means they have health care. It means they have good jobs. It means they have education. On the other side, I see that there is a deep desire for concentration of wealth and power and that that is the end. You know, it's MAGA Republicans, but also like Rupert Murdoch and looking at the massive role that Fox News has played in reshaping people's worldview in this country and does every single night. That was and is a project about concentration of wealth for the Murdoch family, and that has been a winning formula for them. So if they have to do the bidding and lie down with someone like Donald Trump, they were willing to do that. And you see that happen over and over again, and people have made those decisions, and it's been at the cost and expense of the vast majority of the American public. And let's be clear, if he's the nominee, they will again. You brought up Fox News. There was a story this week that there's a new, you know, Fox News for Spanish languages. I don't even remember the name of it. It's got something like $18 million in seed funding. How effective have you seen radical right wing media? Because it's not conservative and they're not Republicans, as I remember. So they're nuts. How much are you seeing that play into Latino communities? I mean, it was interesting watching like this election being in Texas, even myself getting targeted by like radical right wing propaganda, which is crazy because one, I live in Austin, Texas, two, I've voted Democratic my entire life, except forgive me, I voted for Ralph Nader when I was 18. But like, you know, I have a pretty straight progressive voting record and I got targeted with all this like transphobic, they're abusing children, they're preparing them for child abuse and all these kinds of things. And I was for me targeting me in Spanish as a Latina mom. And so I was like, wow, if they're targeting me, they're just really going far. Like their universe is huge. The other side does not care about accuracy at all. Right. They don't have to. Right? They, they don't have to. So they're just going out with like crazy statements about crime, about QAnon, all kinds of things. And I've definitely started to hear those things more. I don't know that it's broken through as yet, at least on the Spanish language side, but I do think it's broken through for other voters because we're starting to see those patterns. So there's some friends of ours who are in the South Asian community. And just the other day, she texted me 
these mailers that the America First Legal Foundation has been sending out to South Asian voters. That's Stephen Miller's group. And it's all of this stuff about skin color um, requirements, now hiring, three to five years experience, college degree, must be black or Latinx. Because what they're trying to do is turn the South Asian community against the African-American and the Latino community and say, look, you've come here and you've been successful, right? You don't do this. You don't do that. Your family people, your doctors. And it's a fascinating, and I use that word not because I'm impressed, but because I'm scared, example of how far the MAGA people are willing to go to divide, 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 to turn one group, the South Asians, against Latinos or African-Americans. From my perspective, there is no bottom. Do you see that, too, within the Latino community, that they're trying to divide Latinos against one another? Oh, for sure. I mean, look at the issue and debate of immigration. Even with immigrants, like they'll be like, you came here the right way. These other people here are coming the wrong way. That's all the messaging they have. You have nothing in common with these people. Even the diseased messaging continues like this completely xenophobic rhetoric. I mean, there is no bottom. And that's the other thing is the other side. They understand. And I'm, I think we're going to start to see it with the youth vote, for example. You know, we saw Turning Point USA start to be on more campuses in Texas. Ted Cruz and Greg Abbott, and them, they started to have youth vote summits. Ugh. Can you imagine a worse way to spend your time than a youth person at a Ted Cruz event? It was uh, definitely the audience did not look like it represented the diversity of who Texas is. I was very, like, <laughs> I'm shocked by that. <laughs> but I do think they're going to spend a lot more money on. It's never about winning the majority of the Latino vote. It's about shaving off margins for power because they know they don't. They used to have the project where it was like it was enough to just use the welfare queen. Right. And try and villainize black women in this country to go after the white vote. Well, the population just doesn't look like what it needs to be to go with that messaging. So they're going to divide and shave off margins. You're seeing it happen with black men. You're seeing it happen with the Latino community. And it's mostly gendered. And so I think they will be spending more than us for sure. They get a lot more money than our side does to mobilize young people. To mobilize everybody. Oh, yes. Everybody. I mean, Christina, listen, Mark Meadows, former chief of staff at the White House, coup plotter, his group just bought an $11 million building on Capitol Hill. Didn't rent it, didn't lease it. They bought an $11 million building. Their money never stops, ever. But that's why I think it proves that the, the plan is about concentration of wealth and power because people of extreme absurd wealth in this country will look and say, well, if I spend a million dollars, I'm going to get a 10 million, 20, 30, 40, $100 million tax break over X period. Well, that's a sizable good investment on my return. And so that's how they're making their decisions. Who cares if these people are absolute racist, fascists, don't care about American democracy, don't care about climate change, are willing to take us to like a suicidal point in our country. You know, the short term payoff is all about what it is for them. You brought up something at the beginning I want to come back to, which is the inequality in this country is yawning, to say the least. It's a massive, massive chasm between the top 1% and the folks that you're, I mean, you're talking so to. I people understand, the top 1% of this country now has 15 times more wealth than the entire working and middle class of this country. Like our brains can't even fully fathom the level of inequality. Right. And this also, I think, creates, as we've seen and you were just discussing, a diminution in the belief of the American dream because folks are now experiencing it for real, which also leads to a diminishing belief that democracy or any of it really matters. Yes. And 
I'm quoting a number from a few years ago, so it's probably gone up since then. I think the most recent one I saw was a 78, 79% of Americans believe that government just works for the powerful and wealthy. You know, if you go back to 1967, it was like 27% of Americans believe that. And so when you come to a place when you no longer believe government is serving in the best interests of the American people, you know, you start to question its value. But I do think that we are in a moment where people are seeing a clear distinction. I am proud to see Joe Biden deliver on climate legislation, something getting done on gun safety legislation. Attorney generals have blocked pathway, but doing some student debt relief. These are big things that Democrats are delivering on that will make people's lives better. And I think that there is a clear, you know, watch Republicans right now in the House. They could barely get Kevin McCarthy to even be majority speaker. And now our economy is already struggling. And now we can't even deal with the debt limit at all because of just the theatrics of it all. Well, and then, you know, too, they put out last week as we're again, as we're recording this, Christina, this cockamamie fair tax thing, which would scrap the income tax. And, you know, I don't know if it's 23 percent, 30 percent, but basically just layer in a 30 percent sales tax on everything, which, again, we have to understand that a lot of the folks that we're discussing here are near the bottom or, you know, lower middle class on the economic spectrum probably aren't paying a lot in income tax as it is or paying Social Security tax and everything because everybody pays on that. But now it's like, OK, and then we're going to make your life 30 percent more expensive. That doesn't make any goddamn sense. I read this great book, which I love, and I will recommend everyone speaking of nerdy policy, which is the triumph of injustice, how the rich dodge taxes and how to make them pay. And if you look at the history of taxation in this country, you know, one in the especially in the 80s, there was a lot of money spent to make Americans believe that taxation was bad. It used to be considered an American patriotic act to pay your taxes. And if you tried to get out of your taxes and especially get out of your taxes and try and run for office, you were believed to be not paying into the system. You weren't doing your part. How could you say you believed in the idea of a shared country if you were not sharing in taking care of it? And so one, I think we have to remember people used to view taxation differently and people's responsibility to pay into the system. But what Republicans over years have done and extremely wealthy folks have done to change our taxation system is just wild where we've gotten to the point where someone like Jeff Bezos pays zero dollars in taxes and the guy that cuts my grass, you know, is paying 15% in taxes. Like that's just a system that makes absolutely no sense. And it is a system that we can change. And so, you know, it was really upsetting during the Inflation Reduction Act to see, you know, we got some of what we wanted to see on taxation, but not everything where we were protecting hedge fund managers and things like that. I think at the end of the day, if we're going to build a strong democracy, we also have to build a strong and fair tax system that's about taxing the rich their fair share. Well, look, cinema. I have convinced myself, and I might be wrong, I have convinced myself that she's going to run for president as an independent. I'm interested in your mechanical thinking to, to have gotten to that point. Well, because she started out as literally like a blue-haired green in Arizona politics, and now she's an independent United States senator from the state of Arizona who's making sure the carried interest guys get their piece. Which <laughs> right? don't live like, in Arizona at all, by the way. Right. Yeah. But also you got like, a, you know, a group like No Labels out there talking about how, you know, they're going to potentially run a third party or, you know, they're going to create a third ballot line for an independent, you know, or fusion ticket run in 2024, which is horseshit. Believe me, I could do chapter and verse on that. And now she's in Davos, right? Like this is not someone who is, is clung to her roots as a progressive activist, right? 
I think that the only thing that's sure about Kirsten Cinema is that she cares about Kirsten Cinema. Right. Mean, I think that's the only thing that you can depend on. Right. No, and I, I think that's totally fair. Okay. So let's switch gears here. Let's talk about 2023 and 2024. So what are you guys working on? So we are going to be operating the largest youth voter mobilization effort across 10 states, targeting nearly 10 million young people. You know, in 2020, we still don't have the numbers all back for 22, but for 2020, we helped mobilize one in nine of the young people that turned out across the country. So big program, contacting them, as I mentioned, in every single way possible. And we're going to be doubling down our efforts to turn them out. I think that young people with the rollback on Roe, with understanding that this was not the end for this Republican Supreme Court, but the opening salvo and that they were going to come for things like contraception and marriage equality. I think young people understand what's on the line. And I am hopeful that we will build a real coalition to defeat fascism again in 2024, because we are engaged in a long term battle with people that are trying to take apart our country for their own benefit. And they don't care what gets burned down in the process. Well, we've certainly seen that. Uh, I mean, I, I, I've said this before, but, you know, we shouldn't forget that, you know, in the wake of the November midterms, that the you know Republican donor set and Republican leadership wasn't upset with Donald Trump because he was a terrible president who, you know, killed 800,000 Americans through shitty COVID policy or tried to overthrow the government, but because he cost them seats. They believe he cost them the power that they wanted. That's why they were upset with him, not because, you know, he's a bad guy. And I think that, you know, from my perspective, you know, you talked about the margins and all of this stuff comes down to those margins. You need every last kid to show up and vote for, in this case, the Democrat, because as I've said before, the Democratic Party is the only pro-democracy party got left, right? I'm not a Democrat, not likely to be a Democrat, but you know what? Like, I'll dig a trench and stand next to you as long as I need to so that we can ensure that your son and my daughters get to have the life that they want and pursue happiness as they see it. And I think that's a huge part of it, too, is so many Republicans now want to determine not only what you can do, what you can read, how you can vote, all the other stuff, but also they want to tell you how to live your life. And that, I can tell you, Christina, as a former Republican, I was never a conservative, is antithetical to what the Republican Party was supposed to be, right? Which is you live your life the way you live your life, so long as it doesn't interfere with mine. Now it's, I want to interfere with your life and I want to tell you why your life is wrong. I'd like to say I can't believe it, but I can't. What I think is important for your listeners, and I really appreciate it, is just young people are very motivated. The idea that young people are apathetic is untrue. This is a very politically motivated generation. And they are not getting more conservative as they're getting older. Older millennials are staying very overwhelmingly progressive. Well, and that speaks to a larger problem, Christina, which is I can't figure out what the hell is wrong with my own generation, Generation X, which is not supposed to like any of this crap, but somehow too many of my cohort are voting for it anyway. Well, that's why you're going to change it all, Reed. From I'm here. working on it. Yeah. I'm working on it. Uh, well, listen, Christina, before we let you go, where can our listeners find you online and where can they find more about NextGen? They can follow me at Christina NextGen on Twitter or Instagram and NextGen on Twitter or Instagram as well. Or for the TikTokers on here, you can find us on there as well. Well, just in that vein, as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Christina, thank you for joining me today and everybody else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com